Miss the show, no problems on point and on this podcast. We should all, of course, do our part, but we have to keep giving our part and doing our part because we have a broken healthcare system that no one in charge will admit is broken. So how long do we keep giving our freedoms up to protect what no one will fix? We'll talk about the collateral damage of this pandemic. It is adding up. New data revealing that almost 12,000 people have died waiting for surgeries, diagnostic scans, to see a specialist. Because the focus is always making sure people don't get COVID. We have allowed thousands to die because they couldn't get timely procedures that could have saved their lives. Do we pick winners and losers in this country? Yes. And we've got the data to show you. You want to boycott China? Don't buy Chinese-made goods. We can all send a message about this global threat, but it really is up to us in the end to make sure that what we buy isn't made in China. And so far, no one is willing or able to break their habit because you have to pay more and you have to read the label. And we'll talk to the Canadian woman whose face was left shattered after a Toronto boxer allegedly attacked her and her friends in a Mexican bar. He's now facing charges of attempt murder. How is her road to recovery? Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. If we want to blunt this wave, please note that I'm saying blunt it, not flatten it. We will need to reduce contacts between people. I believe we can do this without closing schools or shutting down businesses that have suffered during previous waves. But it will take serious restrictions that reduce contacts. This is a hard decision. Ugh, the worst wave yet? Don't invite that guy to your next party. When does the lunacy stop? Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, December 16th, and the answer to that is it does not stop. Great to have you here on this uh, day. And so much excitement uh, as the kids wrap up their last day of school, get into the holidays, and of course it's all lined with these Omicron unknowns. And, you know, I picked up my son and I couldn't help but think, like, Did he just finish his last in-person class? I mean, are they going back to disastrous online learning? Because that is my biggest fear. I fear weeks of at-home learning after the holidays. And I fear that more than getting this virus. And that's because, like most parents, I saw the destruction it caused to my son's learning, his mental health, not to mention mine. No question. Working parents trying to homeschool is just this very cruel hell that very few can handle. So I don't want to go back to that. We should not even be entertaining that. And uh, when I got my little guy, the first thing he said when he got into my car was, Mommy, please don't take me out of school. I want to come back. And I just looked at the teachers and I said, Trust me, I have no plans. You will be back in school. And they want to be back too. The teachers want to see the kids. So it is. Uh, that's my goal. The kids are going to go back to school. And I think we have to keep our mind frame in that mode because they need it. They need it. But it is hard to uh, remain optimistic that sanity will prevail because when you hear those in charge using phrases like circuit breaker, that is kind of, that's cutesy talk for lockdown, right? That's a normalized little talking point for lockdown. And I'm not, you know, I'm pretty measured about this thing. I don't lose my mind over daily case counts, you know, I just don't. I watch the ICU numbers, which are right now in control. So I'm not living my life as if the sky is falling. I just don't. I'm either going to get it or not, and I'm doing what I can to make sure that doesn't happen. But it's clear in this variant, whether it's mild or not, and I think it is, uh, it spreads really fast. And the reality is we have to 
protect this very severely broken health system no one will fix, which is why time and time and time again we find ourselves in this situation turning ourselves inside out. The data is very clear that this is incredibly transmissible. Uh, if we were seeing in uh, Toronto or the greater Toronto area the type of explosion of cases that they've seen, uh, say in uh, Kingston, you might have 10 to 20,000 cases in the GTA uh, right now. And so this is an incredibly transmissible disease. Uh, and the levels of infection that we see in other jurisdictions are really high. I do believe that if there was strong public health measures, you would be able to blunt that transmission by enough to buy some time for boosters. That might mean that there still is broad spread, uh, but I do think that you, uh, you can control some of that transmission. So by now we know that the worst case scenarios have yet to come true. Maybe that will happen this time. I don't know. But so far, none of the modeling has actually come true. But then I'm thinking, like, how is it possible that we're in the worst wave yet if we are all double-vaxxed? I mean, just a couple of days ago, the experts were suggesting that Omicron actually might be the start of the end of this thing. Which is it? The start of the end? Because we should not be entertaining any lockdowns. Doug Ford said on Wednesday, we can't lock down to get out of this thing. And that was echoed today by Stani Brown, who made clear, yeah, things are going to get crappy over the coming weeks, but we don't need to lock down. And we don't need to keep kids out of school. His message basically was just do your part. Get a vaccine, get a booster, or see less people. Not a big ask. It's fairly reasonable. So, you know, I was going to go to Costco on the weekend. I'm not. I can give that up. No problem. I don't need the headaches of a Costco parking lot, right? I just don't. I can buy the cheese. I'll pay four bucks more somewhere else. That's fine. You know, we can all do our, our bit and piece without having to give up everything. But the one thing I won't do, I'll give up my Costco. I'm just not going to refuse, you know, seeing my family. I'm not going to miss another Christmas. So everyone just cut their trip out to Costco. That'll help. Just do your part. Because two years into this thing, I don't know anybody who is willing to hunker down. I don't know about you, but I've noticed a real shift, uh, shift in frustration in the last few days that we are worse off now than we were in the beginning. And I'm talking about the people in downtown Toronto who were all banging their pots and pans and locking down. Those people are done. I have a friend who's going to Mexico uh, with her family. And when I even mentioned, by the way, Stani Brown is saying this, you sure want to go on a plane or whatever? Not because I, I, she's worried about getting it, but like the headaches travel is going to bring. She lost it. She told me, she said, I'm so tired of this BS. We are vaccinated. This variant is mild. Hospitalizations are low. We're going. Stop. Period. Gone. We're done. A lot of people are saying that. And I think Jason Kenney is right. When he says 21 months in, people are at a breaking point, and that asking us to continually do more just will not fly. It just will not fly. And his point was that no matter how many rules we keep getting, you know, tasked with, society at large is now so frustrated by this never-ending seesaw ride that they're just going to go around the rules to kind of find as much normal as they can. So, you know, you can lock us down, but people are then just going to quietly go and see their family with 20 people, whatever. And normal is fleeting these days, you know? With every wave, we've been told, you know, the coming winter will be hard, but if we just do a little more, then summer's going to be better. These seasonal promises can't become our permanent state. And if this is what life looks like moving forward, where we get this sucky, awful, dark winter, but summer offers us a bit of a reprieve, I'm out. No thank you.
this is not life. I mean, yes, we can do our part, we should do our part, and I'm sure most of us will, but we can't stay permanently stuck in a very reactive, restrictive, and circuit breaker kind of life to confront a virus that's not going away. So instead of talking, you know, worst waves, I really wish those in charge would start confronting the actual culprit because we cannot just stop living and giving up freedoms because those in charge insist we have to protect a broken healthcare system. The Toronto Sun points out, we pay a fortune for healthcare in this country. We pay a lot of people huge chunks of money to run the hospitals. And what do we get? We've got record wait times. We've got a system nearing collapse every flu season. I mean, if they can't do a better job, then they need to be shut down, not us. I was chatting with my brother, who literally just got back from Texas. And he had this look on his face like, it's just normal. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, it's just normal. No masks, no panic, no paranoia. The Texans are just... They keep, keep going on. They keep, keep it on. And, you know, we wave our finger here in Canada. We just wave our finger at states like Texas and Florida. We wave our finger in judgment that they're getting on with life. Well, maybe that finger should point inward because we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And here we go into another wave, which is the worst one yet. So which is it? So you may have been spared from catching the virus, but data is starting to roll in that reveals thousands of people in this country died because they couldn't get other life-saving health care. Things like cancer diagnoses, they just were left unchecked. Heart disease was left to fester, and then it turned into a heart attack. SecondStreet.org is a think tank that monitors how government policy impacts everyday Canadians, and they did a freedom of information request to find out the numbers of deaths outside of COVID. And they learned that over the last year, 11,581 people died in this country waiting for surgeries to see specialists or because they just didn't get diagnosed in time. All because the focus was making sure people didn't get COVID. We allowed people in this country to die because they couldn't just get timely health care. Colin Craig is president of secondstreet.org. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Explain to me how you came to the process and got these um, numbers, just so people have an understanding of how this works. Yeah, so we've actually been doing this for a couple of years now. And what we did is we asked governments across the country a simple question. uh, How many patients uh, died during the previous year while waiting for surgeries? And then we expanded the research to include diagnostic scans and uh, appointments with specialists. And governments track this data because when someone, is, when their name is taken off a waiting list, quite often they can, uh, the staff can indicate the reason why. And some one of the options is, well, the patient has passed away. And so, you know, I say we got the data. Some government bodies just simply don't track it, which yeah. I think in itself is problematic because mm-hmm. one would think that it would be a major concern for a healthcare system if patients are dying before they receive the care they need. And I, I do want to make one thing clear to your listeners is that um, we don't have all the details because governments didn't always provide us with all the details, but we do know that the procedures that patients were waiting for, the surgeries and that, it ranged from things which would have improved their quality of life during their final years, like a hip operation, yeah. a knee operation, cataract surgery, that type of thing, 
to certainly several cases, too, where patients died while waiting for procedures, which may have saved their lives. Yeah. So there's a real gambit of uh, different uh, examples in this data. But I think no matter how you look at it, there's certainly some trouble, troublesome numbers in the findings. Well, it's unconscionable. I mean, you know, we sit here and talk about how wonderful our universal health care system is. This is not a, a knock at the frontline workers. It's not that issue. It's the system itself. It's severely broken. And yet we pay billions and billions and billions into this broken system. And actually, when you look at the numbers you guys have been digging into uh, since April of 2018, You've actually now identified 26,875 cases where a patient died because they just couldn't get that breast cancer scan or they, they missed a growing you know, tumor somewhere, you know, maybe in their, their colon or somewhere. I've heard a lot of anecdotal stories you know, and, you know, where, where friends who you know, were, were totally healthy and, and, and they died because they all of a sudden have stage four cancer because they just couldn't get in to get the services. You know, so when we say we don't pick winners and losers, we clearly do. Well, we, yeah, we certainly have with COVID. I mean, there's been a number of cases. An Alberta patient, Jerry Dunham, uh, mm-hmm. needed a pacemaker put in. And they said, no, no, we can't do it now. We're focused on COVID. That's essentially what they told them. So they decided that That's a COVID nuts. patient's life was more important than uh, his own life. And, and he passed away, sadly, leaving behind a couple children. Um, a patient true. in uh, Ontario, Shannon Anderson, she's 44 mm-hmm. years old. She had four kids. And she required uh, a heart procedure, and they didn't get it for her in time. She was put on a waiting list, waited too long, and sadly, she passed away. Those are the stories that we can't forget in this. No, because once upon... Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, for all the joking that people said about Sarah Palin uh, talking about death panels, I mean, everyone joked it off. But this is essentially what, what those in charge did was they thought they realized, well, we don't have a health care system that can handle all this. So we're going to have to figure what's the priority. And they've made COVID priority. They, they have. Yes. And I, I think we we as people that are, are using the health care system as patients, as you know, people that are paying attention to what's happening, whether you're in media like yourself or on my end, where we're at a, working a, at a think tank. I think we need to ask governments more straight up questions because I think quite often they won't have answers. And that in itself is a problem. In, in Nova Scotia, the government was able to tell us that last year there were 51 patients that died while waiting for procedures which may have saved their lives. And in three quarters of those cases, the patients had waited longer than the recommended wait time. So that seems like it's, it's pretty clear that some of those patients died because the government let them down. Yeah, what and it's not just adults. Number? We should we should point out your numbers also um, sick kids, uh, where they had eight kids, kids who were with surgery teams and, and they couldn't get the surgery in time, so they died. That's true. It's it's kids too. But what's the number for Ontario? You know, the government told us that there's about eight thousand patients that passed away while waiting for things like diagnostic scans, surgeries, and other procedures. So, in how many of those cases could those procedures have potentially saved their lives? Who has the answer? I, I would well, suggest I, to some Ontarians listening, they might want to ask the government. And if the government doesn't have the answer, I think the question is, well, why don't you have the the answer? Isn't this an important thing to track? That well, I mean, that's why why groups like you do these uh, requests for information, because as we both know, you'll never get a straight answer for, from a politician on this. <laughs> but it is something that we should demand uh, to know and have accountability on it, because uh, at least just let's be honest about it. 
I'm up against the clock on this, Colin. We will have you on again because this is the second time that you've dug up these numbers, and certainly I don't think we have the actual uh, totality of this, so I think the numbers are going to actually be much higher. I'd love to chat again. We're going to keep digging. And by the way, if any of your listeners want to see all these government responses, they're scanned. They're on our website. They can see them for themselves. Secondstreet.org is the site. Colin Craig, very much thank uh, your time and appreciate your insight. Thanks a lot, Alex. That is uh, secondstreet.org. They've got all the report and the numbers on that site. So if you want to look into it. You know, as calls grow louder for a total boycott of the Beijing games, there are things we actually can do ourselves to send the message. And the question is, you know, will you, you know, will you watch the Olympics or will you boycott it by turning it off? You know, we've seen the polling over the past few years and consistently it shows that a huge majority of this country absolutely want our relationship to change with China. You know, that it's time to take a tougher stance decouple from doing as much business as we can with this regime. And it's the easiest action we can personally take, you know, is not to buy China-made products. But that may be easier said than done because it may mean paying more for various, you know, things that are, are now pretty cheap and doing things like checking labels to see where the product is made. And it's not always that easy. But I think, let's be honest, as much as someone may want to take a stand, convenience and cost often trumps the cause. John Robson is with us here. He's a National Post columnist as well as executive director of the Climate Discussion Nexus. Good to have you. Good to be here. You wrote about this in the National Post. It's called Don't Blame Big Business for Our Made in China Addiction. Um, It is easy to say I won't buy anything from China. And then when you actually try to put it into practice, it's not actually that easy. Yeah, the, the column was actually uh, triggered by a, a colleague of mine. I hadn't realized this, but he, Kelly McParland, uh, spent an entire year trying not to buy anything from China. And he found that in a lot of cases, he didn't buy anything at all. And in others, he got a foam for a roof rack from a local firm that did some kind of upholstery. But he said, I don't know where it came from originally. And so I thought, well, for me, it's not just a year. I'm really committed to this. But when you go online, and Amazon is is not the mm-hmm, only mm-hmm. center. They're they're bad, but you know the Home Depot is the same way, and so on. If you if you chase it down, and sometimes you have to Google because the name of the company looks innocent, but you say, is it a Chinese company? And sure enough, Guangdong, there it is. Or other times, the description of the product is just in this florid but fractured English, and you're like, yeah, okay. But when I have a choice, and I will pay more, I just bought a pair of headphones mm-hmm. that were made in Vietnam, and I paid more than the, for the Chinese ones, but I'm serious. But other things, a bread box. I couldn't find a bread box that wasn't made in China. And sometimes you need something, right? Like Christmas lights. You've got to have Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. They're all made in China. And I'm not saying don't have Christmas lights, but I'm saying let's put pressure on the retailers and let's vote with our dollars because you don't blame the store for what's on the shelf. They put the stuff on the shelf that we buy, and that's all they do. Corporations are not big, sinister, influential things. They're just conduits for our wishes. And in a way, that's the problem with capitalism. There's no one else to blame. Yeah, I mean, if the demand is there, they will put it on the shelves. Um, But, you know, it would help, I think. And I do think people would do uh, their part, maybe if there were easier labeling on stuff, because sometimes you have to really search through the label to figure out where, where it was made. Yeah, and sometimes it's like place of business, and you go, oh, oh that's fine then. And then you think, yeah, right, that's where the office is. Uh, but I, they, they outsource it. I bought a keyboard from Microsoft, so I didn't bother to check because this was Microsoft. And, yep, there it is in the box, made in China. Um, or oh, I needed to get a 7-inch spring form pan. There was something we had to do that required one, and made in China. 
Um, so, uh, but, but when I can, like I look and, and Amazon is actually getting better at listing. Um, but sometimes it's just the name of this company and it doesn't always look, uh, you know, it's not obvious that this is Chinese, but then you Google it and you have to, and at some point you just get fed up and say, fine, I'm not buying it because you're not giving me a choice. Uh, but as long as, you know, they say, oh, companies, they just want to make money, you know, they're always into the bottom line. And then we insist on having it be 20 bucks, not 30 bucks. It's not them. It's us. If we were going to pay 10 bucks more to have it made in Oshawa or North Carolina, that's what they'd be selling us. Yeah, but then again, that means there's no one here ready to fill uh, the niche. I mean, look, I bought, uh, I had to go to Amazon to buy masks, and uh, and I wanted to buy, like you, something that was not made in China, and I managed to find a Canadian company. But you have to really look because there's not that much available, which says, okay, there's a demand. Let us, you know, domestically supply that demand because we're seeing more and more, comp- you know, a big corporations. You've got. Um, Nike, which uh, just got hauled into a Dutch court on, uh, you know, allegations that it's using cotton um, with the forced labor of the the Uyghur Muslims. But there are a lot of big corporate companies like that that are using manufacturers in that particular region. They're exploiting these people. We buy this stuff. Um, And again, it's very difficult to figure out where the product's being made. Is it being made in Xinjiang? Is it being made in where? Where's the manufacturing part of it being being done? And then, of course, even coming into this country, uh, there are a lot of ways for for China to get around the rules that we have in place. And so I don't know where the where there if there will ever be a political will, John, to actually get to the bottom of this. But we should we should be doing the best that we can to make sure that we're not letting this stuff into the country and then we're not actually rewarding it. Yeah, and I think you have to mirror and saying to yourself, am I going to blame the company because it sold me something or am I going to blame myself because I bought it? Am I going to take the time? Am I going to go through the listings? Am I going to check the packages? Because if you're not, you know, and it's not, it's not just the slave labor and not just the, the Uyghur Muslims, though obviously that's very serious. It's the fact that the entire Chinese populace are slaves of the Communist Party. And it's the fact mm-hmm. that Xi Jinping and his colleagues want to take over the world. But why would you give them money? It's like shopping in Nazi Germany. I know the Hitler analogies are overused, but in this case, it's this, these people put Mao Zedong on their money. He's the worst mass murderer in history. There is nothing wrong with drawing that analogy. And I think they are getting ready to invade Taiwan. And if they do, I think, again, mm-hmm, I hope people mm-hmm. wake up. But why not wake up now? Like, remember, it was the Quakers way back when, the first people to object to slavery. And they wouldn't buy sugar. They said every cube of sugar has a drop of slave blood in it. And some people go, oh, why are you being so sticky about, you know, I like sugar. But they said, no, not at that cost. And so we're all like, oh, if I'd been around back then, I'd have been an abolitionist. Well, you're around now, so let's take a stand. And it's not so there aren't people, you know, willing to make things affordably in India and again in Vietnam. There's all kinds of countries where people are trying to make themselves better and are willing to manufacture. China is exploiting its own people in order to conquer ours. And that's just something that I I think we should take a stand against. And, you know, I know some people really are having trouble making ends meet. But if you've got the extra 10 bucks, use it for something virtuous. You'll feel better. Yeah, but again, you know, uh, I think this is one of those... You know, I think there's a, a want. Uh, it's a matter of doing the having the will, but it's also not going to be an overnight change. I mean, there there has to be more than just a conversation about this. And I'm not sure we. Well, I know we don't have the leadership at the provincial or, or certainly the federal level to to actually you know try to help people change their consumer ways. That is very much for sure. 
But again, I mean, I don't know what it is with the Trudeau people and Huawei. It's, you know, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but if they were trying to convince us that the Chinese government has some sort of blackmail hold on them, they would do exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing. But yeah, I don't wait for Justin Trudeau to point the way morally for you in your life. Uh, you know, do it yourself. And, um, you know, start start with the stuff that is, is fairly simple and straightforward, the things you don't really need or you don't need them right now. You've got time to check it out and go into the store and look at the labels um, and, and work our way up from there because everybody's, you know, all full of moral indignation about the wrongs of the past. But the past, you know, to some extent, let the dead bury the dead and, and worry about the living because the, there are important moral challenges in our own day. And, yeah, I mean, it, obviously it's got to build, right? More and more people have to do it or the stores won't respond. But, again, to come back, businesses don't take possession of your mind. They don't make you want things. They don't make you buy things. Big oil, big tobacco, big paranoia that somebody, I can't remember who I thought was Andrew Coyne, but it wasn't. He said, oh, yeah, in the 70s, energy crisis was the work of big cardigan. But they're just stores that reflect us, our character, our wishes. Yeah. If there's unhealthy food in yeah. the store, it's because we buy unhealthy food. But look at all the restaurants and stores that specialize in healthy food, because at least some people want it. Well, we can have, and, and fair trade coffee and that sort of stuff. There's a lot of this going around. Just make sure that China is included in the places you don't buy stuff from, because the regime is monstrous. Yeah, if you don't buy it, the businesses won't stock it. And there's your start. Well, good luck in 2022. I certainly try to do my part. It is challenging, but nonetheless, it is something we should commit to. Appreciate the time, John. Okay. John John Robson, who you can read in the National Post, he's written about this this particular issue, but it takes a bit of effort. It is worth the effort. You know, it was a it was supposed to be a dream vacation and it ended up turning into an absolute nightmare for a Vancouver woman whose face became a punching bag for a Toronto boxer who turned on her and her friend after they told him, leave us alone. They were just trying to have fun in a nightclub in Playa del Carmen. And that boxer, Peter Nowischek, who's a pro and he was training in Mexico, is now sitting in a Mexican jail where he's been since charged with attempt murder with femicide for the alleged attack. Um, And the the attack, I should mention, involved two women because they were both attacked. Uh, They were both knocked out. And it was 27-year-old Jamie Coots who ended up suffering the most damage. Not only was she knocked out cold for five minutes, but this boxer left her face shattered. Her nose and eye socket broken so badly, the Mexican doctors didn't even want to touch it. And you might recall last week we talked to Jamie's friend, uh, Genevieve, just before they boarded the flight home, getting her home to a surgeon. Well, now Jamie herself is able to join us. Jamie Coots here on the radio with us. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. How are you feeling? Um, you know, I know you've been through a lot. You, you get home on Canadian soil, which I can only imagine that must, must have been just a flight from hell. But you, you kind of came off that plane. You got to go into surgery and see doctors and, and a number of procedures are done. You've had a surgery where they put several plates into your nose and your eye to kind of keep your face from collapsing. But ha- bring us up to speed with how you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Currently in this moment, I'm feeling fairly optimistic. So um, when I, I'm so thankful to be in Canada, but when I landed off the plane, we went directly to the hospital. Um, We spent about nine hours there just kind of preparing and looking at what they needed to do for surgery. Uh, A couple days Mm. later, so Monday, I went straight into surgery. It was um, two and a half hours long. 
They went in through the top of my mouth between my lip and my gums. They put a plate in there. They um, went in my lower eyelid and put a plate there. And then there's actually another incision below that as well. I'm not sure if they put a third plate there or if they just needed an access point there. But So I have uh, two sets of stitches below my eyes. And then they actually put a metal plate in my nose as well just to hold it together. So... Um, at this moment, all the structural is done on my face, but mm. the doctor updated me today and said in about six months, I'll probably want a cosmetic nose surgery. What was their reaction? I mean, I know that, you know, seeing the x-rays and, and really for our listeners, I mean, you have to see the initial x-rays that were taken in Mexico after um, the attack uh, to see just the 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 amount of damage done to your eye socket and to your nose, it's just shocking. But what was the reaction of of your doctors in Canada when they saw the damage? You know, I'm so thankful to be back in Canada because the amount of professionalism and just how safe I felt to be in the hands of the surgeon that I mm-hmm. got, as well as the nurses, was unbelievable. Um, but the way that um, that my face actually shattered. It was kind of a coping mechanism. The um, doctor let me know that because I was hit so hard in my eye, the way that it actually breaks underneath um, was, is kind of like an airbag system. It, they, it did that to save me, um, save my mm. eye from, from damage. And so now that my my bones had broken like that. They just needed to repair it. And of course I did have a little bit of internal bleeding and stuff happening in there. And because of the way that my eye socket broke, it was able to drain out naturally without actually doing any damage to me. Boy, oh boy. I mean, it's just, it's staggering what you have been through given it was just supposed to be kind of a get out of COVID, get some energy back in your life, have a good time, and, and it turns yeah, into this yeah. nightmare. When you when you look back to that night, Jamie, and, and the aftermath, now that you're at home, I mean, what goes through your head? It, it still doesn't feel real. Of course, I'm still suffering from, like, um, a quite intense uh, concussion right now. So my, mm-hmm. I'm, my brain's working a little bit slower than it normally is. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it's been 11 days now and it, it actually just feels like it's been four days, you know, it's just, there's so much that's happened. Um, but I'm just so thankful to be at home and have my family and, and to have had Jenna the entire time I was away. Yeah. Just, I don't know what I would have done without her. Yeah, I mean, she got knocked out, too, and she got hit, and she kind of stayed by your side, and the, the she, two of you together in the yeah. aftermath got got through this. Yeah, she had a stitch in the back of her head, quite a big gash. Her jaw was swollen almost shut. She couldn't eat. She's as concussed Jeez. as I am, um, and she did everything for me. She went to the Seven Eleven to get waters and food and Gatorade when we needed it. She kept up-to-date um updating my family she was on my phone 24 7 she got me ice when I needed it she did absolutely everything for me when I needed it even though she was in obviously excruciating pain herself the man in this uh, particular case has now been charged uh he is sitting uh, where he should which is in a Mexican prison um 
does that give you comfort? Because there's still quite a procedure that you're going to have to go through in making sure that there is justice, whether that's going to Mexico to yeah. be part of the, the trial, whatever. I and mean, there's still a long road, not just in recovering from the physical and the emotional pain, but, you know, making sure that, that this guy is held to account. Yeah, there there is a lot that I'm going to have to be doing in the next a little bit here and I'm not even sure of everything I need to be doing Um, but it is it's going to be definitely a long road ahead of me I don't know it's just because there's so many legalities in regards to him being charged there and if he's going to be coming back here and all that stuff so I really don't know what the future holds Um, but I think it's complicated. No question about it. I think we need him here in Canada. (laughs) Well, no question about it. I mean, he'll he'll be spending some time in, in China, um, in Mexico for some time. I'm sure he'll get back here. Has anybody around him uh, from his fighting organization, from his family, has anyone reached out to you? Not that I know of because I wasn't on my phone and it was Genevieve um, keeping up to date up until I guess about, I guess yesterday I really was able to start looking at my phone again. Um, I haven't gone back in messages, and I know she was just trying to get through what was important, but not that I know of. She didn't let me know that anybody had reached out. What is the um, hardest part of this been for? I mean, God, I don't even the laundry list, uh, the pain, the, the fear, um, the, the aftermath, the physical damage to you, the emotional trauma. What is the hardest part of this journey for you? Uh, looking back, the hardest part was... Mm-hmm. When I was sitting on the plane and and thinking that they were going to kick me off and not let me come home, there was just an enormous amount of emotions running through my head and, and thoughts that I wasn't sure how to cope with. Um, mm-hmm. Now that I'm back and I'm in recovery and I'm surrounded by so many loving people and and I know that I'm safe, I think, of course, the physical pain is it's bearable with tramadol and ice. It's there, but I think watching mm-hmm. my family and my friends and and um, past traumas that have come up for my friends, it it really it's been triggering a lot of people, and I think that's the hardest for me to watch. Yeah, I mean, I know this is not your first time that you have been followed or harassed, um, so you have to deal with that. But you have obviously a lot of people who very much care about you because you did set, uh, um, Genevieve or your sister had set up this GoFundMe. I mean, it's raised tens of thousands of dollars, but you know, you've got surgeries that you have to do. It's not like it's just, oh, well, I want a better nose or I want cheekbones or whatever. This is structural um, you know, repairs that you have to get done to your face. And, and I don't know if that's one surgery or two surgeries. It may turn out to be a few, but you have a lot of people yeah. who care. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so, I definitely acknowledge that and I'm so appreciative of it. I um, originally, when Saturn Rose had set up the GoFundMe, it, it didn't even mm-hmm. cross my mind. That was the last thing that I was thinking about. And now, looking at it I don't know how I otherwise would have been able to get by between the cost in Mexico uh, the surgery costs that I may have here in the future um, obviously cosmetic um, rent I'm not going to be able to I'm an eyelash extension technician and I'm not going to be able to be doing that for quite a few months now so I mean like without and of course lawyer, lawyer costs too but without Mm -hmm. that being set up I think I i wouldn't be able to keep my my current apartment. So I'm beyond Jeez. thankful for that. I have so much gratitude. 
um, for every person that even just shared it and sent a loving message. Um, everything helped so much. I mean, I take it when you bought this trip with your friends, it, it, like, how do you even imagine something like this happening? It's the last thing I thought of. I mean, like, it was so unexpected. Um, yeah, it was just so unexpected. It's not something that even crossed my mind. The trip itself was so spur of the moment um, that both Genevieve and I didn't even think about travel insurance. It was a couple day trip and I can't believe mm. it. Um, it didn't cross my mind, but I'm positive I will. Always- it didn't cross your mind that a boxing champion would uh, shatter your face. <laughs> I mean, who'd have thunk it from Canada nonetheless? Right. Well, look, yeah. Jamie, we're, um, we're very thankful that you were able to talk, talk with us today. I know you've been through quite an ordeal, but we wanted to update your situation and your story. And, uh, and I very much appreciate you chatting with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's Jamie Coots, who is on the mend here joining us. And uh, the GoFundMe is still coming uh, in with money and donations because of the surgery she'll have to go through and obviously legal fees and that. It's at GoFundMe Emergency Surgery After Assault in Mexico. And you can see some of the pictures and the damage uh, she suffered. But boy, oh boy, what a long journey this young woman has and certainly will follow the legal process, which very much is a local story here. Alrighty, thank you for listening. Of course, you can join me live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.